You are unmuted. What episode is this? This is 300. Episode 3. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 300, is recorded live September 29th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I am doing well. I am fading fast, but I'm doing well at the moment. And also joining us this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Aaron, I'm doing excellent. How about yourself? I am doing fine. It is a little damp, but other than that, I think we're we're doing good. Uh, I noticed the flies have died down. The mosquitoes are starting to give up. A little, little frost wouldn't hurt. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room on our 300th episode of the Scuba Obsessed podcast. We haven't really done anything special. I mean, it's going to be a, a typical episode. Maybe it's the 500th. Is that the one that you do everything big on? We do everything big all the time. Boy, it's like it's like a marathon just getting to start. I'm ready for a nap. To thank everybody who's in the chat room. We had quite a following in earlier. Let's see, we had Paul from down in Florida. We had Scuba Tech. Yeah, there was Scuba, scuba Wags. That was someone out of Grand Haven area. Yeah. You know, yeah. We had, we had uh, quite a few. Dave, Dave Tonneman was in the chat room as well. Yep. So uh, we may see him come in, and it was just uh, one of those perfect storms where we had TalkShoe mad at us, we had Microsoft Skype not working with us, uh, all sorts of fun stuff. But we have taken uh, care of it now. Probably just a whole bunch of cascading updates. It's kind of like one trick to another, trick to another, and uh, trying to get everything all working working in sync. But we're working in sync now, so yeah. we're going to run with it. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news, get that out of the way, because I want to get to talking about some diving. Uh, first article up is just a confirmation of last of an article we had last week, which if you remember us talking about the uh, discovery of the HMS Terror, and now we have archaeologists who have verified that that's exactly what it is. But uh, in my mind, there was little doubt considering what else could it be. You know, sometimes when you have well, uh, an area where there's a thousand shipwrecks, you can you can kind of go, oh yeah, there's a, there's a chance it could be somebody else. But when you look at where it was, there was not many opportunities for it to be anything else other than the terror. Yeah, but but these outfits they want to be sure before they make it official. There, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there, there have been plenty of instances where people have announced finding um, the the Griffin, you know, yeah. only to find out that it's it's something else. And uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sure that they wanted to double check their measurements and go against the records or anything else being lost up there. Um, you, you can't blame them for wanting to be thorough. No, no, and this is somebody else. I think plenty of people had already declared it to be the terror, but this was uh, reported by Radio Canada International, confirmed by a team from the Arctic Research Foundation that it was the HMS Terror. Well, and I think that even the place where they had found it was, wasn't that called uh, Terror Bay? Yes. So perhaps, perhaps it had been passed down, okay, this is where it was last seen, so we think it's there. Well, a lot, that's been a case a lot of times. Uh, you've had the the indigenous people from that area had a, had a name for it, and they went in. And, and when we talked about what was what was the other one, they had the terror, and then it was the 
the Erebus, I think, the only one. Yeah, the Erebus. And that was actually found the same way as that uh, locals had said, hey, yeah, you know, pff, my great-grandfather said it was over there. You know, it's, it's, it's always kind of like anything that we've gotten in a semi-modern society where, you know, we take credit for, you know, only we can take credit for discovering an island with people on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so cool. that, that has been verified. Um, and let the, just for the sake of time, we'll skip that next one. It was just an article on MPs encourage more people to take up scuba diving. And, uh, I didn't get a chance to look up, up MP as, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, uh, a politician in, uh, UK speak. Uh, the next article is 200 divers form an underwater human chain in a Guinness attempt. Since we've been doing the podcast, it is not unusual to see all these, uh, Different Guinness attempts. So Were they is, trying to drink Guinness? Yeah, yeah, that, I, I would en- I would endorse that one. That's the kind of Guinness that came, that came to my mind. Uh, this was an attempt was made between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. at Malos in old uh, Limassol Port. Uh, what the two was it doing? More than 200 divers, men and women, uh, dive to a depth of five meters for about 10 minutes, forming the human chain. And we got a muddy diver who just showed up, so we're going to add him in. Nice photo. Of the human chain? No, Muddy Diver. Oh, <laughs> for, for those who don't know, uh, it's, and this is a, uh, is this this year's? Mac, whenever he goes to a dive show, if they have mermaids, he gets a photo. And uh, this is a, uh, a quintet of mermaids. I like a quintet of mermaids. <laughs> well, quartet. 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 Yeah, that's right. There's only four there. Unless oh. you consider Mac a mermaid, he'd make it a quintet. I don't know. Merman. <laughs> yeah, Merman. He, he's been in the water long enough, he should have gills by now. I think he well, does. I think the little airs he goes through, I wouldn't be surprised. But back like in fish. <laughs> but back in Cyprus, uh, in 2015, Italy had broke the participation record with 173. We want this record, and we're working hard to achieve it. We really want to show how wonderful and safe the sport of scuba diving can be. And nothing says that like putting 200 people together on a rope underwater. Yeah. They've got a, they got numbers on everybody. You see, you see the uh, the photo there. Everybody's got a little number. Must be for verification or, or something. Yeah, I'm having to kind of visualize this. I'm not getting this one to load on over here. So. Okay. Well, next one up is uh, Longford scuba divers uh, to benefit from a tractor run. And I think this one's a follow up of an article we did before where they were announcing the fundraiser. But I am not familiar with a tractor run here in the United States that we have done one, but I think it was a parade of tractors, and maybe it's kind of like where we have, uh, where people will do charities and you, you pay so much per mile or per jump or uh, whatever unit. And uh, the event raised 18,000 uh, pounds. Oh, wait, that's something else. Am I? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading these articles all out of order. So this is the Longford Scuba Divers to benefit from a tractor run. Uh, Darren... McGlynn Memorial Tractor on which takes place uh, this last week. Gosh, I'm, I'm just going to skip this. We'll edit this one out. There's nothing like talking about something in future tense that's already passed. So, well, I don't know. what's the, what's the date in the article? The date in the article was like last Friday. Because what I do when I how I find the articles, I do filtering, so I only get mm-hmm. stuff that would happen since the last podcast. So it was since the last podcast, but it wasn't before the event. So. It was showing it as if it is coming up when it has already passed. Uh, gotcha. So 
Well, I can usually edit on the fly. That was just a little too much for something that may or may not even happen. Uh, All right. It's gone. Okay. I don't know. I'm not even, none of these are really working on me tonight. Maybe I got 300-itis. So Lake Tahoe. Let's see what this one's about. What caught my eye on this article about Lake Tahoe, and uh, we'll have the show notes up on the website. They're usually up within a couple days. Uh, Jim Billings has been doing a good job keeping those current. Uh, was the photos. This is not conditions I would expect to see in Lake Tahoe. Has, have you guys dove out there before? Mac, when you were out there? Diving where? Lake Tahoe? No. Be nice. Yeah. Because I'm looking at these photos in the article, and this looks tropical, except with fresh water. Yeah, Lake Tahoe is supposedly the most beautiful lake in the United States. So it's, um, yeah, it should be a great place to dive. Probably pretty cold, and that's probably why it's so clear. Well, they, I mean, they're, I'd, I'd wear a dry suit for them, but they've yeah, got some nice photos in this article. Although, I've kind of wondered about, um, if you want to dive something clean and clear, I kind of wonder about Torch Lake. Um, spent some time up there, and the water looks especially clean and clear at Torch Lake. I wouldn't mind trying that someday. It's up there just uh, kind of northeast of Traverse City. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I know uh, you can make a pretty good tech dive out of it, too. It's about 312 feet to the bottom out there. Ooh, yeah, you, you get a deep one there. Yeah. So here on Lake Tahoe, they're talking about using a... Uh, a sushi dit, a, a disc, which I don't know if you've you've seen those, but it's the the round disc with the black and white on it, and you use it to determine how clear the water is. Okay. Federal and state regulations have set a target clarity in Lake Tahoe of ninety seven point four feet. So that's what the, that's what their target clarity is. That's like saltwater clarity. That is phenomenal for fresh yeah. water. So they're yeah. getting 97. Could could they do the same thing in, in the Great Lakes? Could they set that kind of target? Well, you know, you it varies a lot. You can set any kind of target you want. <laughs> it's hitting it that's tough. Yeah. Well, I, well go ahead. It, it varies a lot, though. I mean, um, early season, you know, we had 80-foot vids on the iron sides. So, I mean, who's to say when, when, the, when was this test done, too? I mean, was this done like, you know, first ice out? <laughs> I mean, uh you know, or, or was it done like you know in September with with the algae just just peaking on you there? So, well, it depends upon just when, when they did it. Yeah, the uh, the the divers in this article are recording uh, the clarity, and uh, they said no one no nobody knows what the water actually looked like when clarity was a hundred feet. Now, to me, isn't that nitpicking when you when you go, oh, we only have ninety seven feet. I wish we could have a hundred. Well, no matter what you got, you're always going to want better. Yeah. So they they said their uh, their Tahoe Clarity project began in 2016 with photographs of more than 35 dives throughout locations all around the lake. Uh, he has planned to gather uh, photographic data from more than 100 dive sites in 2017. He believes the project will reveal differences in clarity over time, paralleling scientific findings from research studying algae, water temperature, and other physical properties of Lake Tahoe. Well. I might be reaching a little bit here, but uh, looking at the picture with the scuba diver approaching the barge here, that's like the, the opening article picture here, mm-hmm. uh, he looks to be in a wetsuit. I mean, it's pretty form-fitting. It's hard to, I mean, I know there are some form-fitting dry, dry suits as well, but yeah, he looks, he looks to be in a wetsuit and maybe even not wearing gloves. Well, if you I look mean, uh, I, a couple photos down, he's yeah. not wearing gloves, and I think it's the same... The same diver in the same uniform. I think it's a. It's like he's doing a penetration in the barge. Okay. 
So if he's not wearing gloves and wearing a wetsuit, then we can assume that it's pretty warm water. I I think that would make sense. Uh, I think you could make that assumption. Yeah, yeah. I see the I see the shot you're looking at now a little bit further down. Then uh, yeah, definitely has a, has a bare hand there. Um, it looks a lot like a wetsuit. I'm not seeing anything as far as well, looking at looking at his his first stage. I am seeing like four hoses coming off that first stage. So he possibly could have you know an inflator for the dry suit on that. Uh, and he could have uh, kind of a semi dry. Yeah, mm-hmm. some of those neoprene. But those uh, are definitely those are definitely bare hands, though. I mean, if, if it's yeah. bare hands, he, he's this is down on ice stuff. That's for sure. It's also showing that they don't have zebra mussels out there yet. Yeah, good point. But beautiful photos. I I would love for us to have water that clear. Now, do you think if we went back three hundred years ago, would we expect to see? I'm, I'm not talking about after a rain or anything. But just normally, say you haven't had rain for a couple of weeks, could we see hundred foot visibility? Typically in the Great Lakes. You're talking 300 years ago. Yeah, I mean before industrialization and large communities on on water. I don't see why not. I mean we've had days where we've had over 85 feet of visibility in the bottom. Yeah, I, I've di- I've dove the Ann Arbor Five and we've had probably close to 100 feet on that. And we've uh, had I, had days where we've seen the stern of Max wreck from the bow. Well, yeah, I've always given the impression that you know. Pre-zebra mussels, though, the visibility was terrible. I mean, how far does that date back to being terrible years. visibility? 25 years, 30 years. 25, 30 years? Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, because my, my theory is that really what's making the water dirty, other than your runoff, is you've got uh, all, our dra- all our storm sewers go into the rivers. <laughs> and it hasn't been until recently that we've really gotten aggressive where uh, larger communities are being fined for not separating uh, your uh, rain storm sewers from your sanitary sewers. Well, we're, we're definitely seeing it in the, in the algae blooms. I mean, yeah. uh, when you have all, all the all the phosphates coming in the uh, in the waterways from from you know everyone wants wants a nice green lawn, but it does uh, wreak havoc on the on the water system. Yeah, uh, and we also have a lot of rules now. If you start putting in parking lots or large buildings, that you have to contain the runoff on site and have uh, I don't know what the technical term is. I call them like a containment pond. Yeah. Uh, where a lot of sediments will settle out before they find their way into the the creeks and river system. So I just in the short time I've been diving, it seems like it's improved. But uh, then you you see, uh, does it, do either any of you follow the uh, Save uh, uh, Saint uh, Lake Saint Clair uh, yeah. group? And they've yep. been documenting some of the municipal waste that's uh, feeding the river system over on that side of the state. And, uh, it's in the millions of gallons of raw sewage a year that they've documented. And and part of it is we have a little bit of a denial where the agencies who are supposed to be reporting when they have these uh, storm sewers, because what will happen is it will rain. You know, the municipal plant, maybe it can process 300 gallons, 300,000 gallons of waste. Well, you got you know, your storm sewers are filling up that, and you might have half a million gallons of water. So the extras <clears throat> got to go somewhere, so you're – pushing it all out the end and you haven't processed your waste. I think that's a lot of our problems, and, and that's what they're, they're saying, why Toledo and some of these other cities where they're getting their water from the lake, why they have to treat to the extent they do, and it's because we're not we're, we're letting too much waste get in the water. Can I butt in for a second? Sure. The average surface temperature of the lake, 53.3 degrees. That, and that's in Tahoe? That's in Tahoe, because you got the ice melt. They're concerned about it because it's uh, their best visibility uh, that they've been recording was 112 feet 
Mm-hmm. Then 102 feet, and the worst average clarity was 64 feet in 1997. The other aspect is you would expect it to be cold at depth because of ice melt. Right. But what they're finding is they're not having a good mix of the cold water. It's going straight to the bottom because it's so deep. And now they're having sediment layers build up, and they are losing some of their visibility, and they're not quite sure how they can make something from that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not a good situation if you're starting to lose visibility. But we know from what we see over here is that's a direct result of a lot of people living along the water. Like Kevin was saying earlier, if you've got lawns that you want to have green, and then... And- and it's my understanding of Lake, Lake Tahoe is it's some very fancy, very high-dollar real estate. So I, it's probably very grown up over there. You have a, a lot of people that want to have, have have their lawns maintained. Yes. So it's I, I think they can find ways to where they're not fertilizing into the, the lake, but it's going to take some effort. And, and you have to care about it. If you don't care about it, you're not going to take steps to mitigate it. Um, but then once you start, seems like once you start building up that silt, it, it's it's a tough thing to take care of. They're, oh, they're, I was going to say, they're concerned about the dead zones. They believe they're getting in the lake because of the non-mix of the cold and the warmer water. And the other aspect is this guy must have been during the spring or summer because you and I know 53 degrees on your hands is chilly, and he yeah. looks too comfortable. <laughs> yeah, it, and it could just be that he went out for uh, a photo op. You know, this could be file photos. Well, this is... It could be, but usually to get good photos, you're, you're still down there for a while because you because you never get the good pictures on the first take. So, yeah. well, th- this is some yeah, right. Well, and and they did a lot of shots because you've got you know the one where it looks like rays of light coming up out of the out of the barge. Then you have another one where the photographer's underneath them. Uh, then you have some where they're showing him going through the wreck. So yeah, they, that was at least a dive, if not more. So or maybe he's just a hardy guy like we are. Oops, let me let me butt in one more time. Uh-huh. I just went and checked the scale times of temperature variable in the seasonal thermocline of Lake Tahoe, and it can be upper seventies ah. uh, during the summer stratification. Okay, and well, then said, it says in the upper seventy meters. That's so, two hundred ten feet. So two hundred ten feet can be seventy degrees. That's what it said. It said analysts of the vertical temperature profiles taken in the upper seventy meters during the late summer stratification. Each of the three subsets during a three-week period, and I'm trying to look at the one for the smaller one, but still the highest temperature they had said was 77 degrees. So that's got to be surface water. Yeah. So what happens is 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 they're being fed by ice melt. Yeah. Which is how they're getting the clear water in anyway. So that's been giving them a benefit of uh, water working. You know, the, this clean, clear water yeah. is is filling the lake up. So even no, if you no, do Mac. have some waste, it's being flushed through. What's, what's that, no, Mac, Kevin? No, Max, since you have the stats there, I'm curious, do you know what, what the maximum depth is in Tahoe? Oh, I just had that one. It was 1,000-something feet. Ah. Okay. Uh, hang on. Right. I'm come back to that one. Go ahead and continue. I'll find it in a second. I'll okay. blur it out. Well, if, I mean, if it's that deep of a lake, though, I'm wondering, uh, you know, sediments on the bottom aren't really going to affect the, uh, the diveable areas then. Um, unless you have a, a lot of current down there stirring that up, uh, you know, what's down a thousand feet is going to stay at a thousand feet, I would think. Yeah, that's 1,645 feet. Average yeah. depth is a thousand. Wow. wow. That's a yeah. deep puddle. That's yeah, that's one the, deep puddle. Yeah, that's, do they, do they ever say how that compares to, like, the Great Lakes? I mean, is it, is it's that like. The Great Lakes. Lake well, Superiors are deepest. Right. 
And but I'm just talking just, about water volume. Are they more like the volume of Lake Erie or? Well, surface well, area is 191 square miles. Oh, so it's, it's not, it's not huge. I mean, it's big for a lake, but it's not, it's not, we're not talking Great Lake size then. No, it, it's mostly just a very deep lake and, you know, it probably doesn't really warm up that much. I'm really surprised to see that it warms up to 70s in the upper 210 feet of the lake because, you know, usually when you have a lake that's, you know, deep, like, you know, has a, a small surface area compared to the depth, they don't warm up very fast. So, um, I'm That's, surprised. I, it's, it's, it, it cannot be that at that depth. Uh, further, I'm looking here below a depth of 600, 700 feet. The water temperature remains constant at 39 degrees. So that variable they said of 77 had to be surface temperature. Yeah, I, I, I just can't see a lot of uh, you know mixing of the sediments and all. If, if the sediments are you know 600 feet plus, you know, averaging a thousand feet plus, um, how's that going to affect the visibility at a, at 130 feet? I mean, I'm, you got you got to have some pretty stout currents, or I mean, there's no way you're going to get a storm surge going that deep, <laughs> or, or or props going that deep. So I um, I, I kind of dispute this to some extent. It, it being an issue of the sediments in the bottom of the lake. Now, it, it might be an issue of you know fertilizer coming in and, and algae blooms coming in because those will stratify. But sediment on the bottom is not going to be an issue when the bottom is uh, you know well over a thousand feet away. My two cents worth, and yeah, it might have been a nickel. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and jump down to the Jacques Cousteau's grandson, who is printing uh, coral reefs. He's He's been experimenting with 3D printers, and this is Fabien Cousteau, who happens to be the grandson of legendary French underwater explorer Jacques Cousteau. Cousteau, who happens to be my age, uh, is part of the third generation of the Cousteau family who devoted their life to undersea exploration. So what he's, he's talking about doing is he's been researching the possibility of using 3D printers to print uh, reefs, and he's working on a project in Bonaire. There's a reef to print. Yeah. So he says uh, they're looking at a home for a 3D printing machine that will print artificial reefs to sink in their surrounding seas. They're currently experimenting with the best materials for local reef building and plan to plant new reefs in the near future. The advantage of using 3D printers is it can imitate the texture and variety of natural reefs much easier, potentially cheaply, than other methods. Cousteau says the texture of the reef is extremely important as young coral called polyps are attracted to roots in its nooks and crannies. Fish, eels, anemones, and other forms of sea life also take advantage of the coral's texture. Our hope with experimentations that will be able to augment and enhance the natural recruitment of corals. We're naturally using aggre- uh, aggregates and binding material to look at what's the best combination allow for settlement of new colonies. Well, I can say that's an awful lot of printing. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of work to make a reef out of that, but yeah. well, my, yeah. Well, my thought is, and I, I don't know what they're doing, but a lot of times with reefs, it's just about having them a place for them to hold to get hold on to and get started. Which is why we used to uh, put ships and iron and old cars out there, is that the the polyps would attach to it. So if you could do the same thing where you start, you don't have to print the whole reef, you just print some of the structures, and then you'd have something out there. What would be interesting is if they could combine this technology. You remember, Mac, uh, a little while ago where they had, where they are doing the electrolysis to build some reef formations? Yes. So it seems like you could almost do a combination here where you could print, you know, get some stuff printed to get some something started, then also do this ele- the electrolysis process, and you could build and grow some of these structures. Well, it sounds like it's more a matter of just getting the texture which attracts the polyps. Mm-hmm. So 
I don't know, they really need to print the entire object, or, I mean, they could just, you know, print a surface, which could be, you know, pressed into place. Um, oh, that's true. So you, so, you could, so you could cast a, uh, so you could you could do some cement castings, and then you could attach these 3D printed sections to them, which would have the texture. I guess that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean, so, it's... I was going to say, it doesn't way. solve the... Ma- <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mac. It, it doesn't solve the problem of why the reefs are going away. And it's basically water temperature is increasing and it's getting pollution from, you know, runoff is screwing it up. Those two items are the major reason we're having issues. So trying to recover them and make more grow, you're still going to have problems with the temperature and pollutants. We need to work on that. Is is it possible the reason why they've targeted Bonaire is that a lot of their uh, destruction may be from uh, just recreational diving on the reefs, people touching the reef and having it die that way? That would make sense. Certainly be interesting to find out a little bit more about this. And how about some whiskey? Some old whiskey. Well, it is. That got Jim's attention. Woke me up on that one. I, I got to inject one more item real quick. Uh-huh. Talking about coral reefs, you want to know what the major five items are? It's called reef bleaching, poison fishing, water pollution, sedimentation. Last one of the five is careless tourism. Yeah, but it's it's on the top five, so that would certainly. I'm not saying that all the tourists of Bonaire are careless, but it certainly has an awful lot of tourists there, so it'd be a, a good place. So we we have whiskey that was found on a shipwreck from 1895 and is set to uh, sell at auction. Century old tipple was recovered from a wreck of the SS Wallachia, which sank in the fifth. Oh, the Firth of Clyde in Scotland. Seven bottles of whiskey a diver found the ship sank and the Firth of Clyde are set to fetch 4,000, no, I said 4,000, 400 pounds at auction. The triple was recovered. God, they, they, they said the same thing five different times. What do you call search engine optimization spam? A 260-foot steamship departed from the Queen's Dock in Glasgow on a course of West Indies with a huge cargo of gin and whiskey. Navigation through thick fog in the islands and the open sea, and the ship was rammed by a Norwegian steamer, which sank the boat 100 feet below the sea level. So still within recreational range. Yeah, kind of bummed they got there before we did. That, that would have made it a little more entertaining down to Roma's Pizza after the muddy meetings. Yeah, it would be. So they said to inspected the wreck in 1988 and pulled seven bottles free, as well as a stone flagon and McEwen's stout bottle which will all be sold separately. Amateur driver kept the bottles in storage at his home until deciding to set them up recently. Sadly, the triple is now undrinkable. Uh, each of the bottles is under half full with liquid inside, massively discolored, and auctioneers have warned that the alcohol should not be purchased as a beverage and is not fit for human consumption. And those bottles do look a little nasty, don't they? Well, you know, whenever you, you do hear stories about people finding, you know, beer or different types of liquor on uh, shipwrecks, and those who sampled it have always been disappointed. Um, oh, yeah. Well, there's, I've never there's heard the, not every everything ages well. Uh, you know, wines, only certain wines are designed to be aged. A lot of the wines that we produce around here, for example, uh, they have a, a sweet spot where once they've they've gotten to the, a certain fermentation, if you let them go longer, they, they start to lose some of their, their tastiness quality. Uh, and I don't think in... Just, uh, distilled products that you necessarily have to do a lot of aging after the distillation. That's probably a bunch of Scotch drinkers who are screaming at me, but 
I don't know, whiskey, does it, you know, we, we age whiskey in barrels, but that's mostly to pull the flavor of the barrels into the whiskey, I think, more than that the whiskey itself needs it. Yeah, I'm not an really expert on that. I, I know that there's a, mostly a fair amount of whiskey on the Florida shipper account. Is it, I think it's Lake Huron, isn't it, Jim, the Florida? Um, Jim, are you there? Yeah, I believe it is uh, Lake Huron. That's, that's the one that has that has all the barrels up against up against the ceiling on a, on a, well, a topic of, could they get a barrel or two out of there and sample them? <laughs> but, uh, um, there's a fair amount of booze out there. Just uh, yeah, as the auctioneer here is indicating, it's not something you want to sample. Well, how about uh, didn't Ross Richardson have a ship that had a bunch of barrels floating around in it? Yes. Were those no. alcohol barrels or were those no. just dry goods? It was whiskey. Whiskey. No, it was whiskey. Ah. Talking about the Westmoreland, right? Yeah, that, that had whiskey on it there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a good reason to, to have a vessel floating around as the hall whiskey. Well, suppose this, on that one, um, when the ship sank, quite a bit of it washed ashore, too. And uh, just some lumberjacks came into some of the cargo and had, and had a real good party afterwards. But it was it was quite fresh at that point then. Um, yeah, these are some really nasty-looking bottles here. Um, I, I, I don't think they're going to get as much for them as I think. Because I, I think from a collector's standpoint... Other than saying that they're old, they're not very pretty. That's, I mean, what do you think, Mac? Is that, you know, in your bottle collecting, do you think those are going to bring much? Not from the bottles, but from the content, maybe. Yeah. I guess other than bragging well, I mean, rights. Like the, I'm curious, though, it's, why are the bottles so, you know, mostly empty? Uh, did the bottles, they didn't shrink up and squeeze the, squeeze the whiskey out of them, did they? I mean, that's... and. If there's so little volume of liquor in there, wouldn't that space have um, been crushed? I mean, I'm just surprised to see that there's, there's so little, you know, bottles are mostly around half, half full or half empty, depending on how you look at it. Is it possible that, because he said they found these in 1988, is it possible that the lack of liquid in there is just a result of the corks drying out and it evaporating after it was discovered? Because like you said, Kevin, they, I would think that if these were had anything in them uh if they were if they were at that volume when they went down that they would have yeah you know, i don't know maybe maybe the glasses of a shape that it was able to handle the pressure were these like sipping old, bottles old, were they you know were these behind the bar and these old, are just what they were serving the, pe- the passengers or well you know older glasses despite it being so thick it's not all that strong so i, I would think that if these bottles were that empty it doesn't say how deep it was that sounds like a question for MythBuster. Actually, we could do that. We don't need them. We could we could do an experiment. Take a you know, just take a modern wine bottle, uh, empty it halfway up, and we just take it down, say on the Ann Arbor Five. And you know, at what point does it have a uh, malfunction? Mm-hmm. That might be a good video. I'd watch that. Yeah, you could run a, run a pool on it too. Yeah, that'd be a fun. Yeah, maybe a fundraiser. You know, everybody the fifty fifty. Everybody put a dollar in, and whoever's closest gets the half the pot. Yeah, you, you got to guess it to the foot. Whoever's closest. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, I, I think we're coming up with something. It's got to be an interesting bottle, though. We don't want to do a modern wine bottle. Well, I think we've got a good. I mean, I'm looking at a bottle here. I've got which is a like a f- couple well, not, flasks. Not, well, don't not, no, don't don't do a hutchy. <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> gonna. I'm not gonna do a hutchy. But some of these are, you know, whiskey bottle. You know, no embossing. Probably of mm-hmm. similar age. Uh, yeah, I, I've got a number of them that are like prohibition era bottles. I, um, you know, I don't know the, the the glass on these is it's hard to get an idea of the scale from this picture here. 
you can see at the bottom there, particularly the you know the one second from the left, yes. got about a half inch thick bottom there. So you know they are showing signs of being you know century plus old bottles, like they say. But yeah, let's do that. I'm game. Take it. I sent you a link, so, Rob. Yeah. I sent a link on uh, bottles underwater and why they taste better, especially if it's wine. Mm-hmm. We covered this about two years ago, if you remember, Darren. Oh, yeah. They took some wine and tried to age it underwater to see if it would be better. Right. Do you remember that? Yeah. And it was actually, and they talked about you lose some of the alcohol, and then they went into the characteristics of the sodium, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I sent you a link on that. The aspect of generally if the bottle is half empty, it's not going to be half empty because something will take its place unless it's had some kind of carbonation or pressure. So I can't find exactly why these bottles are not diluted, but I'm looking at the bottles and it looks like you have particulate or sediment. And I'm curious, where did that come from to begin with? So I'll look a little more while you guys are discussing it. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I like this article. We've talked about it before and we've, uh, in this part of Michigan, we have wineries and other things. And this has been one of the things I've wanted to do was just to uh, set one out. So maybe that will be another one. If we get enough Patreon supporters, maybe that will be, uh, uh, gosh, I don't even know if I could say it on the air. You know, we could uh, put a barrel down and maybe we'll have an after dive season party and let everybody take a sip. Because we couldn't <laughs> sell it because we wouldn't be licensed if you just happen to be there. Well, that sounds like a good activity for the uh, New Year's bash. Other than I can never get to do the New Year's bash. Remember that uh, year we did find that full bottle? Oh, the the one there uh, by the turning basin? Yes. Yeah. And we made sure that that bottle was there so it could be discovered. <laughs> <laughs> if we could find it, we could see how it tasted. Mm-hmm. Well, we, I, I think we found we, we sunk it and found it and then reefs found it. Wasn't that the, the story? I, I'm, I just I'm, remember the picture. It's one of the first in the club site, mm-hmm. and I don't know what happened to the bottle. Jim? Yeah, not Jim. guilty. <laughs> That's right. It's not Jim B. Never mind. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, I, I, I think Jim Kleeman and I. We, we. Uh, I think we did find it a, a following week because I think we put it. We put it there, and then it wasn't there when you guys went looking for it. And then we found it like a couple weeks later because we hit that basin quite a bit that that winter. Which now I believe is is that condos now or is that down farther the condos? Oh, the turning basin is where they want to put. They want to transfer the dredging, you know, where the boats come in and unload the gravel and the salt. Oh. They take that away from the island and put it there in Whirlpool Basin because that's more of an industrial site and it's out of the view of that hotel. Yeah, the, this is all, guys, this is starting to get incredibly local, but it, it, it's like the first step to, you know, move to Muskegon is, is where I put that in. You know, you just keep moving them farther and farther and farther down. Once they agree to move, they'll they'll be out before you know it. So let's see. Uh, next next article we got, uh, Kevin, is one that you had. When it comes to shipwrecks raised off the seafloor, Peter Ostalo may be Wikipedia's resident aficionado. So what's this article about? Let me pull it up here as well. Um, okay. See, my machine's moving a little slower than yours tonight. Well, I'm looking at photos. Well, I, I like it. It had, um, you know, some of the best well-known shipwrecks in the world with the the Vasa and the Mary Rose. You mentioned mm-hmm. the same article and mm-hmm. had a lot of pictures here of the Vasa. And, you know, this is a real good one to, to share with our chat room um, because, you know, we, we talk a lot about shipwrecks here in the Great Lakes, but we do have people that listen to us around the world. And, of course, we have shipwrecks around the world, too. Um, and, and these are some of the, the greatest well-known shipwrecks 
you know, internationally here. And, you know, the, the, the Vasa, um, it's one which they were able to fully excavate and bring up and restore and mm-hmm. uh, preserve it here in a, well, in a museum there. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, uh, doesn't mention, uh, what's, what's the gold ship? Okay, here. Yeah. You know, the Vasa is a museum ship in Stockholm. According to its Wikipedia article, the ship has become a widely recognized symbol of the Swedish great power period and is in de facto standard in the media and among the Swedes for valuing the historical importance of shipwrecks. I mean, this, you know, this is a, this is a shipwreck with star power here. Yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful shipwreck. I mean, it, it, I, if I understand or remember correctly, is it sank on its maiden voyage? Yeah, it was, uh, wasn't it like, it was, it was top heavy. And it came out yeah. just quite ready for it, and over she went. And it took, a, like, I think, 33 people along with her, too. So uh, yeah. not everyone managed to escape. But, you know, you look at the you know, the, the Mary Rose had, you know, a, a similar fate. Um, Mary Rose, I believe, had the gun ports open and turned, and, and the turn to the ship healed, healed over far enough so water came in the gun ports, and over she went as well. So, But the Mary Rose... It's not nearly quite so pretty as the Vasa. No, it's, it, it was in a little, little less protected area than the Vasa. The Vasa, I, I believe, was in a river, so you had the combination of the, the fresh, cold water, uh, and then it got silted up fairly mm-hmm. rapidly. Yeah. But both are uh, beautiful shipwrecks. Yep. Some nice photos. Just, no, I just like the article because it, it had both, both of these ships in it here, and they are, you know, world-known shipwrecks. You know, we, we talk a great deal about the uh, the Ann Arbor and the Ironsides and the Havana and our, our, our locals here, but um, these are the big boys here. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's a map here that shows the uh, the track of the Vasa, and she didn't get very far. <laughs> I mean, it was a very short trip, and over she went. I guess I shouldn't chuckle because there was, there was some loss of life involved. But just just nice pictures here, real nice yeah. pictures showing the Vasa. Um, article is, where is this, uh, Wikimedia? Yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a Wikimedia org, but it's uh, basically talking about Peter Isatalo and his work with uh, you know drawing attention to and uh, preserving these wrecks, great shipwrecks. Yeah, and he's he's got quite a few Wikipedia articles that he's contributed to over the years on shipwrecks. He talks about the Cronin, which is another Swedish wooden warship that was discovered in the fifties, but that one didn't get raised. They have the Anthony Roll, uh, then the Edema and the Turuma, T-U-R-U-M-A, and those were from uh, the, the fleet in the 18th and 19th century. So, now, It's just fascinating how, though, these international outfits <clears throat> are able to put together the, the, the cash to raise these, these, these huge ships. Uh, you know, think about it. I mean, would we want to raise, uh, oh, say, the Cornelia Windier, you know, very, very intact uh, sailing ship up uh, northern Lake Huron area? Uh, intact enough, it probably could be raised. Uh, but can you imagine the effort to do something like that? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. just incredible. And here they have two of them. Now, I don't think they were nearly as deep as the, the Windy 8 is, but nevertheless, I mean, to raise an entire ship and put it in a museum, no, yeah, that but, doesn't work. But, well, right, and but most of these organizations, they're at a national level, and I think they only did that. Like the Vasa, I think if you asked everybody who did that, like say... <laughs> Well, and they do have another one. Uh, they're not going to raise it, at least not in the next 50 to 100 years. I can't think of the ship's name, but we did. That was done in Lake Michigan. A uh, gentleman brought it up independent. It floated on the surface, and 
he tried to maintain it but could not and could not get support to uh, preserve it. So he basically burned it at the at the dock. Alvin Clark. That was that was the Alvin Clark. But yes, that was a sad story. They they were fully unprepared for the amount of effort it takes to preserve one of these boats. And I believe the Vasa has been pretty well just about dipped in shellac, hasn't it? I mean, the, the entire boat is, has been uh, sealed. Am I correct on that? Yeah, my understanding, they, in that atmosphere, they sort of impregnated it with, you know, I, and I don't remember if it was submerged or if it was a, like an airborne. Mm-hmm. But that's what they did. Basically, they sucked it up. Yeah, I think the, I think they were they were misting it. So they they put it in a controlled atmosphere and they started wetting it with with pure water, and then they slowly added this other agent to it to get the the wreck to absorb that. It was some sort of polymer, uh, so that as the water worked its way out, then all that was left was this uh, polymer that held the wreck together. Well, that's what you had to do. Is as we've seen. Uh... You know, they, they don't fare well when you pull them out. And I, and I see you found the same article that I did on the Alvin Clark. I just went to the link, too. Yeah. Well, that's that's another Wikipedia on that. So that in 1967, uh, Frank Hoffman was hired by commercial fishermen to free nets that snagged under the surface. He dove in and discovered the nets tangled what appeared to be a ship's mast. The ship was referred to as the Mystery Ship at 19 Fathoms. So it was brought to the surface in July of 1969. It was completely intact. Some of the mechanical systems still worked, and it contained a variety of preserved artifacts. Once the water was pumped, put to the holds, the ship still floated. Hoffman birthed the ship in uh, Menomee, Menominee, uh, and cleaned and re-rigged it, and eased it into an earthen slip. Hoffman then built a museum nearby and exhibited the ship as a tourist attraction's mystery ship of seaport. There were no conservation plans to place the ship free from the cold, low-oxygen water at the bottom of the bay. It immediately started to deteriorate. His group had not included museum and historic society representative, and his demand to be compensated for expenses included raising the ship, frustrated efforts to find a permanent home for the ship and a start of conservation. The proceeds for the museum came nowhere near to paying off Hoffman's incurred debt much less providing restore, restoration funds. ship eventually deteriorated beyond salvation. In 1985, Hoffman attempted to burn what was left of the ship. In 1987, he sold the ship to a group of local investors for $117,000. Investors moved and stabilized the ship, but they were never able to adequately preserve the ship either. ship eventually deemed beyond saving was deemed a public hazard. In 1994, the mystery ship of Seaport and remains of the Alvin Clark were demolished to make way for a parking lot. Boy, as a undignified end. Yeah, I believe there's another ship, the the, uh, the Cuddy Sark, an old man of war story on that one. But similar idea, only that that one was a very historic ship and uh, ended up being burned, bulldozed and burned as well. Uh, Mac, it seems like we've talked about a ship that, uh, when they built one of the nuclear plants, uh, was discovered and brought on land. Yeah, actually two of them. Just uh, parts of the hull, they were clamshelled. Uh-huh. In the tunnel, uh, they brought sections to the side, but it created so much of a stir that when they clamshelled additional parts, they dumped them out in a barge and dumped them in deeper water. <laughs> they didn't want to deal with everything. Well, they didn't need the traffic on the shoreline because that's a hazard during a construction yeah. period. Let's see. What do we have next up on the list? What? How to become a commercial diver. So this is an article from DiveIn.com. And it's a guide. Um, Kevin, what is what is this one? Oh, it's just an interesting story about a gentleman who, uh, you know, never thought about diving. He's on a vacation with his wife, and they uh, um, he planned on going, I believe, spearfishing. 
but the or some some type of fishing he was going to do, and the fishing was canceled on the island. And he and his wife ended up going on a snorkeling tour, and from there he got into a little bit of scuba diving. I'm just paraphrasing basically here. Mm-hmm. And from there he um, oh got into diving, you know, quite hardcore, and had a friend that. Uh, you know, made a commercial diving outfit and took him on a tour of that, and pretty soon he found himself a commercial diver. And I just thought it was, you know, cool to watch this unfold here. And um, I know we have, you know, commercial. You know, we have a former commercial diver here as one of our commentators. And I thought Mac might have some good insights on that story. Well, I didn't look at the one you have here yet, but I know at this time I believe there's nine commercial diving schools in the USA, and depend on which one you go to is. It's quite interesting. The classes are generally 16 weeks. Uh, some go up to six months, and oceaneering, you can get a two-year degree at it, which really makes sense. Uh, it, it's amazing, though, how many people go to, to a commercial school and not have been a scuba diver. Uh, the one I went to, we actually had some people come in early, take basic scuba, advanced scuba, to get into the class. Uh, the attrition rate after one year is about 90%. So that means 90% leave the industry. Correct. It, they find out it's a lot of freaking work. And when you start talking dark and deep and cold and you're talking an eight-hour day, a lot of people didn't like that. <laughs> it also requires you to move around a lot generally. So, I mean, there are benefits, and it's a wonderful experience. Long-term, most people try to get the experience and then be a topside supervisor. It's less hazardous and pays better. Uh-huh. That, that's what I was going to ask. Is 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 a diver? You just don't get to diving. There's a lot of other activities that you have to do along with being a commercial diver. Because I imagine there's got to be gear responsibilities and and it, it depends on the, the outfit. If your mom and pop shop, if you're working for a, a major group, but you take a look at just like the uh, sport diving, you're going to get your certifications. If you're really going to stay in the industry, you're not just a diver. You want to be a welder. You want to learn NDT non-destructive examination, all right? You want to be conversant in scientific diving, which is totally different and is a different platform. Uh, you want to be a dive medic. You want to be a chamber operator. You want to be a small engine repairman. You have those talents, and you're going to go far because if you're not actively diving, you can do other jobs that they need you for, surface welding, and you can learn both welding and or cutting. When I went to school, it was, I'm not going to be a welder, it's easier to teach a welder to dive than a diver to be a good welder. So I was a cut and burn man. How to burn <laughs> something. So you can salvage. You cut it apart, they're going to haul it up. I'm not fixing it. But the more tools you have in your tool belt, meaning all those specialties, that's the kind of person they want. And they want people now with a, with a degree. I, I, it would make sense. So, Mac, I've, I've talked to different people who were commercial divers. Um, and it seems that people who did it for pay as a career end up either – really disliking scuba diving, you know, there's been enough, enough danger, enough hazard in their work that they would never, ever do it for fun. But then there are others like you, um, like John Chatterton, who, uh, you know, were commercial divers and yet love to recreational dive. Um, what do you think makes the difference there? I didn't get burned out. I uh, mean, I didn't put that many years in. I was more of a QA diver, I, which was fine with me. I'd go down there and inspect the job beforehand. I'd go down afterwards and see, did they do the job to the specs? Make my job easier. Sand sucking is not a big deal. You know, clean. most of mine is shallow water, meaning under 250 foot, inland lakes and rivers, where you're cleaning trash troughs, rebuilding trash troughs, items like this. The guys 
who go up to the North Sea, they're going to earn their money. If they're going to do a sat diver, you're going to earn your money. But again, look how long you, you stay in that kind of job. Okay. Interesting article. You know, I just kind of thought this might have some good insights. Because, you know, I, the, many people who, who dive at some point think about, well, could you do this for a living? And, you know, of course, you know, commercial diving is very little in common with recreational diving, such as done underwater. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, I thought about it. I'm sure others have as well. The experience was great, and I loved it because every job is different. Uh, you work at a power plant. And they want you there on Friday, and they want you finished Sunday so they can go back full power. So you were under the gun. If you're pouring concrete, you're, you know, you're, you're replacing something underwater, you're on the clock, and you're doing it three shifts of eight, possibly two shifts of 12. But you're working your buns off. But it's, it's great because you have challenges, and you got to fix it. The, the easiest one was nuclear diving because they watched over you like a hawk. Your biggest threat there was hot water. You're, you're, you had to have a cool suit. The other one that was really interesting, but you had to watch out for, is sewage diving. No. <laughs> because any any disease known to man, you can get when you start diving in raw sewage. So you certainly didn't want your suit to leak. And what you didn't want to be, you didn't want to be that man's tender. <laughs> Why is that? Because you're, you're hauling on his line. Oh. <laughs> and, I mean, you better be in some kind of suit because that's a shitty job. No joke. <laughs> and, and then you got to decon the diver. Me, I'm great. I stand there until I'm deconned. You take my helmet off. I'm, I'm sweet. I mean, I'm pretty. That person, guy, <laughs> the tender, <people> like sewage. <laughs> so, so he, he, he needed a body condom. Oh, but you better believe it <laughs> to keep him. Well, that, that's the job for the for uh, for the new guy, right? <laughs> yeah, that's how you learn. Yeah. And the hazmat's the the really weird one because if you're diving in like in an acid tank or something, it's really good to know what it eats. Like, does it eat neoprene <laughs> plastic? <laughs> what it's going to do to my hose or my helmet or my my safety valves? So that kind of diving is the one you got to be really, really careful of because you know you can do everything right and still die. But again, that's it's sort of fun. You're, you're not selling me on it, Mac. Not at all. <laughs> going to talk me out of it. So that's like when you go into a, a, a big pool and I say, "Well, we need this inspected to see what's happening," and you, you go down. And the rebar rungs as you go down are being eaten away by the contents. Oh. And then you get in and then you look at the concrete because the concrete is spalled because it's being weakened by the chemical, whatever it is, that's inside of the vault. So, yeah, it can be quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems yep. like, uh, Mac, when, when uh, we were diving the Cooper River, uh, Captain Tom seemed to have some stories that were going on about his boat that he, he would use the boat in some of the containment ponds and the boat was aluminum because it was, it was resistance to a lot of the chemicals that were in it. But he discovered that any sort of uh, gauge or fitting that had gone through the hull is those would start to corrode and be chewed away by the chemicals. Yeah. I, I seriously would recommend though, people who are interested in commercial diving, do the sport diving first and find out, do they really like cold and dark? So how about we, we, what could we do like an apprentice program for him? You know, hey, you you have to find four hutchies and a milk bottle and and do that in the you know zero vis in the middle of the night. And if you if you can do that, then you're you're okay to sign up for scuba school that for commercial diving. Like, it kind of sounds like hazing to me. I don't know. So. <laughs> I, the, the nice part about the commercial work, though, I always liked. I had my come home bottle and I had a line tied to me, and I could talk to the guy on the surface. You don't have that in scuba. Kind of like on the. Uh, the gold hunting shows. 
Bering, yes. Bering Sea Gold. Yeah, and those guys aren't commercial. <laughs> I'm not quite sure some of those are professional either. Are they even legal? Oh, I'm sure they're legal, but it'd still be. I'd love to go up there and try that for a week or two. You notice a week or two, not this, you know, whole whole thing. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we need to contact one of these outfits and say, see, of course, they're already getting tons of publicity, but maybe that would be an interesting article. Hmm. It gives me an idea of something to think about. Yeah, something for a podcast. There we go. Yeah, maybe. Broadcast from the Bering Sea. Oh, that sounds cool. I'm in. Yeah, I, I, I would be too. I got uncles up in Alaska. Maybe I'll call him up because I, I think he's in a little bit different area. We have club members in Alaska. We yes, we do. Hmm, that'll be interesting. Well, let's polish off the end of this scuba news so we can get on to talking about some diving. We have uh, scuba divers eaten alive by a giant fish. How's that for an image? Hmm, I kind of doubt it's going to match the header. What do we have here? Optical illusion. There we go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I said. Uh, God, it's just a bunch of photos. But they're, what they're talking about is, uh, what, what's the name of this fish? They say the fish can... Wally the Napoleon race is a well-known fish who patrols the Australian Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, so it's 330 pounds, and it's on the endangered list of species. Napoleon raises, okay. Oh, and they have some interesting uh, reproductive habits, apparently. So, hmm, okay. That might be the reason why they're endangered. Oh, we could make a lot of sexist jokes on this one here. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's an optical illusion in one image. Mr. Bernard swims in the background as the giving impression that he's been swallowed by the whole giant fish. So this is an example of an article that is not meant for a podcast. You really have to see the images. Mm-hmm. But they're cool. I mean, the, the, for somebody to take the time to get the image just right. I, I've often found that you're talking about the fish here. There, it's a fish called the ray-finned bony fish, mm-hmm. and it's big enough that it actually sank a boat when it ran into it, and that was a steamship. No <laughs> steamship? Yeah. Wow. As to the length, the longest extant bony fish on Earth is the king of herring, or oarfish. Averages six meters long at maturity. A specimen caught in 1885 was 25 feet in length, weighed 606 pounds. We've seen a lot of oarfish photos in the last couple of years doing the show and they are massive yeah so this guy could probably do justice to that other picture we looked at yeah and yeah, these are an odd looking fish though yeah, yeah it's only have that in salt water i haven't seen any of those in the river yeah yeah we don't run into those in the river and how about well, this? go ahead yeah but you haven't seen them yet the thing is is that if if they see you you're probably not going to tell anyone about it it depends on what they're over, whether we tell anybody. Well, but I'm saying if the fish sees you, well, you're probably not going to tell any stories after that. I think you're game. It's, it's game over. I'm seeing pictures of the eating people, man. I'm not going in the river, man. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the river. Yeah. Well, how about this uh, next one? The, uh, the giant shark uh, gets close to divers. Uh, this one's a video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, God, you got would... to watch that little loop and... You know, just because you're in the cage doesn't mean he doesn't have a way of assaulting you. Mm-hmm. Three divers in the cage, and uh, the video shows the shark coming up, and, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of a social commentary by the shark. He does a couple passes and then turns just right, and he, like, poos right in the cage. And this is kind of like in the cartoons, you know, when somebody farts and it turns like a big green cloud. Uh, this does not look any better than that. Yeah, this has been a quite a bit a hot topic around the Internet here, but... It's another thing we do not have a problem with in the Great Lakes. 
Then this next video is of the got it just right with the current too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. He it's like he he knew what he was doing. It's kind of like the monkeys at the zoo throwing poop, and you know here you got sharks. Yeah, but why do all the fish all charge into it now? Hmm, <laughs> gross. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the, any of, any of our listeners, basically, if you if you search for shark going poo on divers, you'll find this video all over the internet in about eighteen different places. Oh yeah. So. Well, how about this next one? In an effort to fight the invasive species of lionfish, uh, a group has gone instead of just using a normal spear gun, they have modified a nine millimeter Glock, and the video shows them dispatching lionfish. And they said before people get too worked up over uh, the conditions, they said that they are using lead-free ammunition. Uh, they would in- they would encourage the lionfish off the reef so they were in sand when they shot it. But the video is quite quite in- intriguing. I think you could create a sport of this. Did you chance to see it, Mac? Oh yeah, we've we've had members of our club do this. Well, and they're doing it in salt water, so you I imagine there's some parts of the even in a Glock. That you have to uh, change out maybe with some stainless steel parts. Or just clean it when you're done. Like immediately when you're done, yeah. I'll just spray it down with WD-40 and that'll take care of it. I, well, when, when I was in the sheriff's department, we used to have a bucket where we would uh, dunk guns in. So kind of the same idea. But an excellent video, one worth watching. And then if that's not enough, uh, enough the makers of the Roomba vacuum are trying to come up with a, a robot killing, ro- uh, not robot, a lionfish killing robot. I'm just curious well, who's going to change it out. Who's going to change the canister out? To a diver. <laughs> Probably a diver. So, a commercial diver. So so what's this doing? It's got a tube in the middle and it sucks them in? Is that what it does? I don't know. You know the old lawnmower you used to have to push with the rotary blades? Yes. Just put that on the front of a big robot and run them around a lot. Well, they we covered that robot they were making that was uh, going after jellyfish. and That was kind of the same idea. We just kind of blend them up and spit them out the back. Right. Then you got fish food behind them. That's a win-win. Yeah. They said they're testing the prototype robot. Uh, will begin next year. Team is also working on recognition software to ensure that only lionfish will be targets. If proven successful, next challenge will be to build thousands of models of combat to millions of lionfish in the Atlantic and Caribbean. I think we need to have a rule that whatever the size of the opening is, it needs to be smaller than I am. <laughs> <laughs> no. It needs to be smaller than I am. <laughs> I'm not saying you're bigger than me, but you are. Well, yeah, I see. The, I see the picture of it here, but there's really nothing for scale. Yeah, it could, it, could, it could be big. Yeah, this this might be the size of a of a basketball. This thing might be the size of a Prius. So you don't know, you know. So, like I said, it needs to be smaller than me. <laughs> well, you you don't want to become chum. No. Don't how, be chum. how about this for an idea? Boat setter helps scuba divers reach their favorite underwater locations. Uh, if you're scuba certified and you own your own diving equipment, Boat Setter is a perfect option for designing the perfect day on, in, and under the water. This according to Pablo Vidal, Chief Marketing Officer for BoatSetter.com. Boat Setter's industry-leading service provides divers and anyone interested in enjoying the boating lifestyle with easy, affordable access to the water. Boat Setter can, users can choose from a wide variety of boat rentals available for a little to half day to multiple days in the water. Interested boaters can decide whether to captain their own boat rentals themselves or choose Boat Setter's industry-leading network of Coast Guard licensed captains. For certified divers unfamiliar with Miami's vast selection of scuba hotspots, experts from Boat Setter recommend exploring these favorite underwater sites. So 
sounds kind of like a private charter. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's pricey. Well, I think they're trying to do it almost as like, uh, what, what were those, uh, cars that everybody had where, uh, you could get on your cell phone and say, hey, I need Uber. a car? Oh, you like a, like an Uber, an Uber charter, huh? Okay. Well, it was, well, kind of like Uber, Uber is the case if you, if they're going to pilot, but there was, was a zip car or something where it was like for college students. So if you're in Ann Arbor and you need a car, instead of having the car all week, you only need it for the weekend for one hour to go shopping, say. Uh, you could go online, reserve the car, and then when you walked up to the car with your phone, it unlocked it and you get in. So this is kind of the same idea with a boat. Uh, I'm, right. I'm just thinking that, you know, a boat's a little different than a car. I mean, we don't have any driver's license requirements for a boat. And just because you can drive a car doesn't mean you can drive a boat. Mm-hmm. So Back. I'm kind of curious about the mechanism they have in place to make well, sure. You can get you can get in a lot of tr- a lot more trouble in a boat than you usually can on a car. I mean, a car, you've got your police, you've got rules of the road, you've got, you know, only certain places you can take it. Um, in a boat, you know, you can take it pretty much anywhere. You think you can take it anywhere there's water, but an inexperienced uh, boater isn't going to know what to watch for shallow water. Um, so, you know, issues as far as, you know, you keep it out of the weeds so it doesn't get weeds sucked in the uh, cooling and overheat on you. Um, you know, there are so many things which, yeah, uh, driving a boat is not intuitive at all. So, I mean, you almost really need to have lessons like you do for learning to drive yeah. a car. But um, I, I'm looking at their website now, and actually I think they're being smart in targeting scuba divers. Because I, I think the average person who doesn't know what the cost is a boat, you know, and they just get a bunch of friends say, hey, let's go party. Uh, they may not comprehend all these risks, but a diver has usually got a little bit more experience on the water not necessarily but you know in the case of our club i think many or most of us have all driven boats and are are, are fairly proficient uh, but look at these prices i think if uh it's not a bad value because if you're going to go and do a charter and say you're going to do a, a two-tank dive uh, you'd expect that to be what 150 dollars down in florida yeah. Yeah. for for a two-tank dive well here they've got boats for a half day uh varying between 500 and seven hundred dollars, and these boats are rated for ten and twelve people. And I'm thinking, with you know, and divers, you know, cut that in half. So the five hundred dollar uh, half day boat, uh, you could put five divers in. So that'd be a hundred dollars a piece. That's that's cheaper than doing your charter. Well, yeah, but is it going to be a dive boat though? I mean, I, I mean, it's kind of hard to actually get a true a boat that, that that's good for divers. You know, I mean, I'll be, I'll be in. I don't know. I mean, is it? I suppose if they're, they're, they're aiming towards divers, and I then hopefully all the boats they have in there are for divers, but, you know, we know as divers that there's not that many boats that really work well for us. <laughs> so um can't exactly get into somebody's, you know, runabout or ski boat and go diving. I mean, you can, but you're going to beat it up and not be very happy when you bring it back to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the requirement is. I'm looking at one they've got. It's a Delray boat kind of reminds me a little bit of Boston Whaler, and I'm thinking that one wouldn't be too bad. Uh, the tough thing is, I'm looking at that boat, it's got fairly high sides. How are you getting in and out of that? You know, is there going to be a ladder? Is that something you need to bring if you're going to be diving? Well, and you got to accept that when you when you have a dive boat, I mean, it's going to kind of take a pounding, you know? I mean, when you're running out to your dive site, you've got tanks that are going to be slapping, you know, banging into things, and, you know, divers with tanks and drop, dropping lead weights from here to time to time. I mean, Dive boats, you know, they they get their share of of nicks and scratches and cracks and things. And I don't know, I I 
So did I have a hard time? I, I have loaned my boat out, but it was to another diver, um, mm-hmm. a good friend of mine. You know, I'm a little leery about it, you know, but I mean, to a good friend, I'd do it. Someone who so was a good boater. But I don't think that the general public, even if they're a diver, really knows enough because every boat's different. You know, every boat's got its own little quirks as far as starting and, um, you know, how to mix the oil and, um, or if you yeah. even do mix the oil, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's just, I don't know, yeah. cars are very standardized, yeah. you know, and, and you've got a standard set of rules. Boats are not standardized and you do not have a standard set of rules. So I'm picturing this being a little bit more like, uh, Airbnb and uh, I've got some friends who have, who, who actually their primary residence they're doing Airbnb, and you just have to take care because you know, like they they've got a hot tub. So people don't know how to do that. People don't know how to flush the toilets. They don't know how to run the garbage disposal. So you just kind of factor that in, and you know, uh, if you're going to be happy with it, you've got to count on part of that rental fee that you're getting. You're going to go right back in the maintenance. So if you're concerned with the chips, uh, you know, I guess on that five hundred dollar rental. Maybe you got, they don't say what the rates are, but I'm going to guess maybe you get 70%. Uh, you, know, you better budget some of that to fix the things you don't like them doing. So I mean, I don't. It's, I think you have to have a really, you have to be very, very careful and really screen your users a lot, which you're really not going to be able to do. So, well, I mean, I, it, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say I like it as a from a diver standpoint. Uh, yeah, maybe it's not something that I would do all the time, but just to be able to get to those sites I can't normally get to, uh, or like, like as Mac and I have talked about, there's certain, you know, we, maybe we want more time on a site than a, uh, a cattle boat is going to give you. So other than owning a boat, this seems to be a, a good alternative. No, boat ownership is not as expensive as people think. I mean, if, if you're handy and can do your own maintenance and you know enough about them to avoid the major mechanical problems or at least keep them to a minimum, I mean, it's really that much more expensive than owning a second car, um, maybe even less. So um, the trick is just to, to buy one that's tough enough to, to you know, handle being a dive boat and that you're not going to, you know, severely damage having it as a, as a dive boat. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's going to take a, it's going to take a, a beating. There's no, no getting around that. So you just, you just get something that's already tough and ugly. So yeah, tough and ugly. <laughs> so, hey, tough and ugly works, man. So. Um, you've seen mine. <laughs> I think that was the name of my first car, Tough and Ugly. Tough and Ugly? All right. Well, let's go ahead and end the uh, the new section of the program. Hopefully we can get this one down to under 90 minutes again. Uh, thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have uh, Eric, who ended up uh, sliding on in there. We had Flyboy Ned, who also came in, and then everybody else who we've neglected to mention. Uh, also, we need to thank our Patreon supporters. We uh, have some some new Patreon supporters, and then we have a few who are at the level that we get uh, we give them recognition. And one is uh, Vanessa Homiak, the Mermaid, and we have Scott Halbert, who are at the uh, Dive Nitrox level and get mentioned on every show. So uh, certainly appreciate them at Patreon. If you think this show is at least worth a dollar, uh, head on over to our website www.scubobsess.com. Follow the links to Patreon and give an appropriate donation. If you donate three dollars or more, that will get you access to some members-only areas in addition to the weekly show notes before the show. And I've been pretty good. I I almost missed tonight, but everybody got them before the show started. And then we also have our 
dive bottles. So if you are interested in uh, some of the perks, we have some some bottles you can get. We have some Hutchies. Uh, I'll have some photos soon on uh, glass bottles that you can choose as a thank you gift for donating to the podcast. So who got diving this week? Uh, Mac, you there? Yeah. Okay. How about you Jim? Think... Jim, you still awake? I think we lost Jim. I haven't heard him for a while. <laughs> he. He, he he wasn't sure if he's going to make it to the end, so I thought if he was still on, we'd give him a shot. But yeah, Mac, you uh, you've been getting some diving in. Yeah, I've been diving with with Kevin, and if you dive with Kevin, you get some diving in. Yeah, I I don't know what between you two, I, I I think you you two must do about half the diving of the club. Well, Kevin does. I just tag along a lot of times with him. Well, I don't know. There's there's other guys who get in the water quite a bit. I mean, I think I think John Nadoba has made pretty much every Thursday Thursday. Um, you know. Bob and Kirk are out quite a bit. You know, I wasn't able to join them. They went out to, oh, Diamond Lake two weeks ago, and I didn't make that one. So, I mean, there's there's so many divers in the club getting out, so. Well, you ought to take a look at Facebook tonight. you find a lot of bottles from a lot of different people, and not just the normal muddies. I didn't realize Jim had gone out earlier, but he has some nice little finds, and we've got some new people posting. Skylar Daisy was in the river tonight and posted some finds, as well as uh, Jeremy uh, Carwin, C-A-R-O-N, Carwin. Now, I don't know what part of the St. Joe River they were in, but uh, nice bottles. Yeah, I'm seeing lots of people are out diving there. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, like you mentioned, I really, um, I, I did some training stuff, which I'll, I'll share when I get that all completed there. But, uh, you know, my main thing was diving with Mac, the... Um, Went out to Pawpaw Lake. We've been trying to find a, just a a big steamboat out there. Actually, we started going out there mostly just to tune the equipment because uh, well, we've been looking for some big some some targets out of St. Joe and using a hummingbird for that, of course. And um, Max put together this really nice towable fish. Does a good job. Uh, we were re- we were realizing that we needed to kind of fine tune a few aspects of it, so we, we went out to Pawpaw. What was that about? Like in June, wasn't it, Mac? Initially, yeah, early in the year. Yep. And we did a, you know, quite a bit of scanning out there. Uh, mostly just getting used to running a pattern with with the fish. Uh, getting used to looking at at the scans of the fish because the fish scans read a little bit different than because well, what well, well, what the fish basically is is it, it's a towable transducer. You, you Mac is made what looks like a, like a torpedo, which we put on a cable and we pull behind the boat. And it sinks down, so it's it's beneath the waves. So hopefully, and there won't be it minimizes the surface interference, and uh, we're able to put a little bit of shock absorber on it there. So when the boat moves around, it doesn't disturb it too much. And in the process, we 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 did find some targets out there um, back in June. Didn't get back into the chance to dive them until just recently. Um, we're quite certain that we, we we found a car down there by the scan. Uh, I, th- I think it, I think it's a Buick. Mac thinks it's an Olds, but there's a there's a there's definitely a car down there. <laughs> um, it, can you see the hood ornament in the scan? Um, no, but it kind of looks like it might have dipped tail fins, you know. So I mean, oh. but they're not they're not quite as big as a Cadillac tail fins, though, you know. So I don't know, um, but there's definitely a car down there. Um, and the car, interestingly enough, is uh, where it's at a location where you possibly could swim it. From the place that we do our, our um, Thursday night dives up there sometimes, so it's not that far from from the launch there. You possibly can swim it there. Uh, the boat is quite a ways from the launch, 
but we, there is a boat which we think may be about 25 feet long. Um, appears to have metal on both ends of it by the scans. Um, I did not dive those yet. Um, we found some big debris fields out there. And we're just very curious about what, because you can see on the scans, these lots and lots of hard, large hard objects down there. And I'm talking, you know, car size hard objects down there and smaller. And, uh, I don't know, I thought by the scans it'd be easy pickings to go dive and go, go see what, the, what they were. But it turns out the, uh, bottom of that lake is just, the sediment is so thick on it. You know, we, we, we talked a lot about the, you know, the algae blooms on this program and, um, you know, all the sedimentation in Lake Tahoe. Well, I put my fin into the uh, you know into the into the bottom just to see how how soft the mud was, and uh, I gave up when I got to my knee. <laughs> it was still oh, going. Wow. Yeah, it was that soft. Um, so, so there's something down there, but it's underneath the muck. It's buried in the muck. Yeah, I mean you can see the the the, the, the hummingbird gives back returns, showing lots and lots of, of hard targets down there. I mean, and by the looks of them, the, the targets are either going to be like metal. Or concrete. I mean, the, the, there are large, hard objects in the bottom down there. So, do you um, th- do you have any idea? Is this like building scrap? Like somebody knocked over a concrete building and they just loaded it in the barge and then went out and dumped it? Or that's possible. But the thing is that it would more, it would probably be be more centrally located. You know, but this is just like large fields of stuff. I mean, uh, and it seems to be kind of at a man, relatively consistent depth. So, um, you know, hard to say. You know, it's enough to be curious about, but unfortunately, the way the bottom is up there, we're probably never going to know just because, um, you know, I didn't stay down there for very long. Um, it was a lot cold. I, I was going wet, and I thought it'd be warm. And no, it was in the 40s down there. It was pretty chilly. Um, I didn't stay very long down there. So so what depths are we talking? Are these like 60 feet? or Those targets are around like, like between 40 and 50 feet. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, some shore references up there. They seem to run between. And... Um, now there's kind of like a we have a number of points on the uh, on the GPS which they seem to kind of be in a line, kind of following the contour of the lake there, They're right around that you know between forty and well between forty five and fifty five feet thereabouts. But we're not going to find out what they are. I mean, I know we considered putting a grapple down there and things. We even tried that a little bit with the magnet and um, don't know what it is. It's just it's just curious, you know. I mean, um, yeah. when we were using. Max Torpedo shows a lot more detail than my surface mount does. Is it yeah. because it's closer to them? Well, no, I think it's just because it's not as susceptible to the vibrations. Um, you know, when you're using a, a surface mount, it's, it's anchored to the, to, the, to, to the transom of the boat, which is where the motor is. Um, which, so you have a fair amount of vibration, and that, and that vibration kind of, kind of mutes, it kind of dulls the return a little bit. Um, and also, I think when we were towing with Max, we were using the smaller, the smaller engine too, which vibrates even less. Um, it's when we're using his torpedo, we get some really, really good returns down there. I mean, uh, I got to make one of my own now. It's, no, that's, that's, that's a good tool. So, so now that you've kind of validated the use of torpedo, we need to get that out on maybe the big lake and see what we can do. Yeah, yeah, and and, and we have a little bit. I mean, we have a little bit, um, and I, and I think we can take it further too. So. Um, we we could do a whole podcast just based talking talking about sonar and um, how to maximize it and all that. So yeah, I, I think that's a good topic, and that may be just a special episode on that. Okay. Well, I've, I've got lots and lots of scans to share. If you want to see them, you know, so I've got scans of most of the popular shipwrecks in the area. Um, you know, and I can tell our listeners about how to 
you know, with their own hummingbirds or Morantz units or Garmin units, you know, how you can get some pretty good pictures down there if, if, you, know, if you know how to do it. So there, there's some tricks to it. Excellent. Well, that's good. Now, Mac, on Sunday you guys got out, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. We did a double dip on Sunday, too. Yeah, I, actually, I was going to join you on the double dip. I got all my gear in the car. I got down there. I pull up to the boat ramp, and I'm like, crap, I missed them again. I got there at 9.30. You guys had went out at 8.30. So at that point, I'm like, well, I'm not hanging around here for two and a half hours. I had it on. So what was it like? Uh, take a look at the picture. <laughs> but it was, it, was it clear? I mean, do we have good viz? Or? We had good viz today. Oh, really? Today? I was kind of concerned because we had rain all night. Uh, and the water level was down. What? How's the water level down? I don't know. Because uh, I was kind of concerned because we've got our ecology dive this weekend. Uh, well, we, it was absolutely gorgeous tonight, and the current was low. Huh. Uh, but the water is getting chillier, so when you double dip that wetsuit, if you got any leaks, it's going to start getting you that chilly willy. Huh. <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've been staying with a dry suit, and I'm going to stick with it by the sounds of it. It's a little chilly. Yeah, we're we're definitely at the area where you know uh, you're the, using a dry suit's fine. You know, I mean, uh, I wish I'd use I wish I had my dry suit when I was in Pawpaw the other day. So, key thing about the river right now is the leaves are starting to fall. Yeah, it looks like you know it. what happens when that happens. Yeah, it covers it's everything up. up. You can't see diddly squat. Well, hopefully, I mean, this is a excuse me a perfect weekend for the ecology dive because I think one week farther. And it would be a mess. It's uh, starting to, yeah. So in about two weeks, when they really start to fall, the the lowland part is going to be obscured. But uh, we did pretty good on, on uh, the Sunday and taking a look at the picture on the club site. Uh, Debbie was doing dry, which was a wise thing. And uh, she's starting to collect some bricks and got some nice ones because uh, bricks are embossed too. And you can get some really nice ones that look good around your patio. So if you've never thought about collecting bricks, give it a thought. Yeah, I've I've thought about it, but you need an awful lot of bricks. <laughs> there's an awful lot of bricks out there. Well, I know there's a lot down there, but do you? Th- or are we going to get in trouble removing bricks? I mean, everything else we can say, hey, that's trash. They're all over the bottom. But is 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 that like anti-erosion, or was that? Do we call that trash? It's in the middle of a freaking river. Okay, it ain't working if it is. <laughs> okay, because I've thought about it. Just bring a brick up every time, and you know, in the course of a couple of years. When you go to the seawall, and if there's bricks, don't take those. Okay. <laughs> okay, I guess, I guess that's a good uh, point to differentiate is seawall, leave bricks, bricks at yeah. the bottom you can take. Yeah. Okay, because so they're... I think, they're I, yeah, I was going to say, I think Adam went out the night with John, so they basically did a night dive. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, Darren, uh, Darren, Jim did go out, but I don't know what time he went because his pictures are in the daytime, uh, but... We had people up there looking for people, meaning uh, Karen and Barb were up there. Mm-hmm. They didn't see any flags, so I'm not sure where he went. But he did do some nice ones. He got a nice cobalt and a couple embossed. And if you take a look at uh, uh, Skyler, he got some nice bottles. I'm not sure which part of the St. Joe he was diving. And the same thing with Jeremy. They both got embossed bottles. So other people are getting out there and enjoying what we're doing. Excellent. And if you look at mine, I think the most important thing I like about mine is the skull. I've been looking for that skull for a long time. Excellent. Well, that, that's good to hear. I was I was concerned because I I woke up in the middle of the night. You know, when I went to bed, it was raining. When I woke up, it was raining. Middle of the night, it was raining. So I figured we had quite a bit of water. Now it wasn't really a downpour, so maybe that's the difference: is that the ground was moist enough to absorb most of that. Well, you got standing water where we park, 
And as we were dressing after the dive, it started raining. But again, it's nice. Yeah, it was a great time. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm all scheduled to to go Saturday and dive. So hopefully, it stays in good condition and we can get in the water again. So you can find out more about that. You go to the mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. We have a post on there. We're also in the Mud Club Facebook page. There's some information. Did you see that I, I created a, an article just so that we had something to share with the news media? Uh, it was excellent that you put it up there on the club site, and you had updated it with another dive thing too, which is good. Yeah, I I did that. I'm I'd like to go back through and fill some of that in, and then we just need to get some of the divers because we got a lot of new newer club members who might not realize that we have stuff on that. And I think actually we need to recruit one or two of them to be uh, webmasters in training to to update some of this stuff, so you and I aren't doing it all the time. Well, I'm still having issues on updating but uh i got used to the first format and that's why i was able to update the treasure site and i i've got all the other ones for backdated for the last six months i have to start updating so we'll be complete by hopefully end of the month okay and i can get with you and we can do some training because i it's just a little bit different than what it was before but i think it's actually a little simpler now but it's because i'm used to it well, and I'm I'm happy to lend a hand too. Okay, I mean, you might have to kind of tutor, tutor me the first time or two, but yeah. I'm happy to lend a hand. So. Yeah, it's 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 not tough. It just needs to get done, and I'm only doing about twenty or thirty websites. So right, I mean, that yeah. seems like that's what I do. I about a third of my day at work is uh, helping people with websites, and then uh, then after work, I've got you know four or five that I'm I'm doing. And thanks again to Jim Billings who maintains the Scuba Obsessed. Uh, website and and actually for the scuba obsessed site i'm looking for if you're an author who wants to write about scuba diving i've got a lot of ideas we just need to put stuff into story form and put them out in the website i want to be more of a resource for our uh divers so i've we'll we'll be doing a uh, if you're someplace you want to know if there's a dive shop by we're going to have a dive shop locator on the website and also a dive location locator so if you're in a an area you want to know if there's any good places to dive they'll also be on there so i've got i've got structure in place to support that hey you know and i was thinking um i have a bad habit doing that once in a while uh-huh. it might be might be nice you know with all the different um you know shipwreck websites and utilities are out there maybe we had a page someplace that was uh updated on the uh what shipwrecks are currently buoyed um be kind of nice people could tune in and say oh yeah there's a buoy there oh yeah buoy's not there oh buoy was supposed to be there but it's not there so someone something's not right there yeah It'd be kind of nice to we have a page that would just had had buoy conditions out there on the wrecks. Yeah. So. And, and I'll and, and we'll get together on that, Kevin. I can show you some of what they got. The, I've got a uh, some software that will help do that sort of thing. So that buoyed would just be a tag on the dive site. So you just say, okay, give me the wrecks that are buoyed, and there they'd be there. And then we'd have something in the comments there verify. Uh, but I yeah. think it's a good okay. idea. I, I, look at anything that you want to know about diving. I, I think I'd like to continue to make the website a source for those and again if you think the show is at least worth a dollar go ahead and donate to our patreon account one way you do that is by going to www.scubaobsessed.com follow the links and you can get there we're on facebook.com forward slash obsessed we're on twitter at obsessed. do you have anything you want to plug kevin a uh, couple things actually um although i think mac might want to plug something first uh you know you mac you wanted me to make that announcement earlier and we got a little sidetracked and we were setting up earlier uh did you want to make that announcement or i I have the text here well uh originally i had posted it talking about the uh at recovery individuals they're doing a program on lost aircraft they've recovered from lake michigan 
and that's going to be at the Dwajak Area History Museum, uh, starting at 6.30 p.m. Uh, cost is five bucks, and I think you're going to find it interesting. These are the people who also located the German U-boat, the UC-97, and uh, it'll be interesting if they provide any pictures of not only aircraft, but talk about the submarine a little bit. In the paper, it had it down as October the 6th. Uh, several people had given me a buzz saying, oh, by the way, they checked with the museum, and they said October 5th, so... I am deferring to October 5th until I can actually find out from the museum. Do we know? But that means it's not on a Thursday, Thursday, so ah, that... we can go to that on Wednesday and then dive on Thursday. Yeah, so even better. Yeah, the, the chat room was asking again about the ecology dive, and as far as we know, that is still on. So we the conditions are favorable. Um, so unless something happens, it is still... I can't figure out what could happen, though. Yeah. And I just posted uh, a link in the chat room, but if you go to the mudclub.scubaobsessed.com website, uh, one of the first two or three posts uh, will be the ecology dive. And it looks like there are there's we've got some sponsorship for the dive, so there will be some uh, prizes. I actually have a couple in my car. Oh, you have some prizes? From SAS. Yes, from SAS. Oh, so SAS has done some. Wolf's has done some. So local dive shops are con- contributing to that. Niles is providing a dumpster the city of Niles, cool. and they're asking, do we need more shore support? And I'm going to say as much shore Absolutely, support yes. as we can get. Uh, my my dream goal would be two shore support for each diver. I think we'll probably get two divers for each shore support. But the, the more we have, the more we can bring up because I I have no problem. I'm, I'm not about being, everybody knows, I'm not about being graceful. Uh, I have no problem standing in the shallows and just, Handing muck, you know, stuff that's in the muck up and hanging it to people on shore, because uh, that's there's a lot. I I find a lot of bottles in the shallows, and that's where most have been thrown. If you imagine somebody staying on the the shore, the and and throwing it in and seeing if it floats, that's what a lot of it is, or it washed in, you know, when we had floods. So yeah, as more shore support, the better. Yeah, anybody who can work in the shallows yeah. is great, and uh, because a diver with gear on cannot drag a tire up with gear on past the shallows. And take it up to shore. Yeah. You need something to pass it off to. And they're asking if kayaks are okay for non-divers. And, Absolutely. And, yeah, I think that's perfect. In fact, kayak is almost like a, a, a floating buoy. <laughs> yeah, I, I can pop up to a kayak and hand them something. Well, that's how Jake and them have also cleaned it up. They were using their kayaks, just reaching down with, you know, he had like a big rake. Yeah. That's how he was collecting his bottles. Hey, not a bad way to do it. Excellent. Hey, uh, I've got a plug I wouldn't mind getting in here. Certainly. Uh, looks like we're going to have uh, some uh, shipwreck talks coming up in the near future. Uh, Michigan Shipwreckers Association is putting on a couple here. Uh, Great Lakes Shipwreck Lecture Series, October 13th at 7 p.m., Laudit District Library, Frozen in Time, the wreck of the John B. Moran speaker, Valerie Van Heest. Then uh, next month, November 10th, 7 p.m., same place, Laudit District Library, through Surf and Storm, Shipwrecks of the Sunset Coast, and that's by Craig Rich. And then we're going to have another one, not quite shipwreck-related, but it's about tall ships on November 17th by Tom Wetner. Probably not good with his name there. Yeah, so got a few uh, you know, ship and shipwreck-oriented things coming up here. Yeah, if you send those to me, I'll put them on the events page. Okay, yeah. Yeah, this is at the uh, Tri-City Historical Museum. Well, this is, yeah. The Tri-City Museum has put has put the announcement out, but it's at the Laudit District Library, which is in, which is in Grand Haven. So, but yep, I will share those with you, Mac. I'm sorry. Yep, I will. I'll send you a link to these, Mac. Okay, so. good. All right. 
So are you guys ready for that time of the show? Ever ready. Always ready. Okay. So here we go. A man and his wife are awakened at 3 a.m. by a loud pounding on the door. The man gets up and goes to the door where a drunken stranger wearing a ball cap with a dive flag on it is standing in the pouring rain asking for a push. Not a chance, says the husband. It's 3 in the morning. He slams the door and returns to bed. Who is that, asks his wife. Just some drunk guy asking for a push, he answered. Did you help him, she asks. No, I did not. It's 3 in the morning and it's blooming well pouring in the rain out there. Well, you have a short memory, says his wife. Can't you remember the three months ago when we broke down and those two guys helped us out? I think you should go help them. You should be ashamed of yourself. Even drunks deserve help. The man, ashamed, does as he's told, gets dressed, and goes out in the pounding rain. He calls out in the dark, Hello, are you still there? Yes, comes back the answer. Do you still need a push? Calls out the husband. Yes, please, comes reply from the dark. Where are you? asks the husband. Over here, on the swing, he replies. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. He's a drunk. He's a drunk. He had a dive hat on. How bad can he be? <laughs> All right. At first I was worried, you know, and he, he's drunk and he's asking for a push. You're thinking, is he in a car? you going to get that guy out from us stuck? I guess I overthink <laughs> thunk it a little bit. So until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time. Recording has been completed. No, we lost Kevin, is what happened. Mm, interesting. Well, I just have to be a little more obnoxious so you so you'll notice it next.